people in their 50s and 60s, should they be taking out another credit card? Should they be borrowing more money at that point? Well, no, because they're going to need to live off that money in retirement. And 10 years out, the national debt is going to be about 100% of GDP, and two-thirds of that debt will be owed to people overseas. And so at that point, we will be paying taxes to fund the retirement of the Germans and the Japanese rather than fund our own. So if we live beyond our means today, we will be forced to live beneath our means in the future. I don't think that's a very responsible thing to do. Happy Thanksgiving week. I'm thankful that today on Your Money, Your Wealth, J.P. Morgan's chief global strategist, the very intelligent and engaging Dr. David Kelly, joins Big Al Clopine and Pure Financial. Financial Advisors Director of Research Brian Perry to discuss market volatility, the midterm elections, interest rates, tariffs and trade wars, Brexit, his 2019 economic predictions, and what all of that means for you and me. How should you be invested now? Dr. Kelly also gives his opinions on value versus growth stocks, international stocks versus U.S. stocks, emerging markets like China, and other asset classes like bonds and commodities. Joe and Big Al have some money-saving year-end tax strategies and, as always, answers to your money questions. Should you sell stock to pay back taxes? And should you take investing advice from one of the big name investment companies? The answer might surprise you. It surprised me. Kicking things off with Dr. David Kelly, here are Brian Perry, CFP, CFA, and Big Al Clopine, CPA. David, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. And we've got just, uh, I guess, a million questions about the market because we've had a lot of volatility lately and a lot more so than maybe we've had in, in the recent past. So. Maybe let's just start with uh, why do you see that there's more volatility right now than there has been? Well, I think the real issue is that volatility had been very low all year. And what we've seen in October really wasn't that dramatic. I mean, you've got to remember, we've got, we've got you know, the Dow at these levels. If you have a 100-point day or two 200-point day, that's not really a big deal. It's not that volatile. So the stock market's always somewhat volatile. It had been very calm. It's got a little bit more volatile. Uh, why? Well, this is an old expansion. I mean, we are in the 10th year of an economic expansion, the 10th year of a bull market. People are a little bit nervous. I mean, people remember the last two big bear markets where the stock market fell by 50% and they don't want to get hurt by it. So when things come up like Brexit or trade worries um, or just worries about the election or worries about future earnings, these things I think are causing a little bit of volatility right now. You know, and you mentioned that it's a really long economic expansion at this point, and we're seeing the Federal Reserve tighten interest rates, which tends to be a late cycle phenomenon. The vice chair of the Fed comes out and says we're getting closer to neutral. How much further does the Fed have to go, and, and when is that going to start to really impact the economy? Well, I, I think that they do need to move to neutral. I think that's okay. Now, they've actually defined neutral because in their own forecast, they say that in the long run, if they're doing everything right in monetary policy, the federal funds rate ought to be at about 3%. Now, they're right now between two and two and a quarter percent. So if they raise rates when they meet in December and then raise rates in March and in June of next year, and they raise by one quarter of one percent each time, then by June of next year, you're between 275 and three percent. And that's pretty much what they think is neutral. So, you know, I think that's probably where they'll stop or at least pause. And I think there's going to be a change in market sentiment on this because the Fed themselves have said we're going to go past that. I really don't think they are. I think that if they get to neutral, that's probably okay for this economy. I think they should move to neutral, uh, but I don't think they'll move past that. Let's talk about the midterm elections, because there was a lot of interest in it, and uh, things happened as we kind of expected, but how, how does that uh, potentially affect the market going forward? Well, first of all, it was as expected, and, that, and that's important, and that's why I don't think we've seen a huge market reaction to it. I think the second thing, and a very important thing, is don't let how you feel about politics overrule how you think about investing. 
Uh, just just one, uh, one sort of statistic I think is fascinating is that if you go back over the last 50 years, the U.S. stock market's given you about 10% per year, which is really excellent. But in the eight years between President Obama's election and President Trump's election, the stock market gave you over 12% per year. And in the two years since President Trump was elected, the stock market's given you over 15% per year. So there has been a huge bull market while President Obama was in charge and a second bull market while President Trump was in charge. And there are an awful lot of Democrats who've missed out on the Trump rally and Republicans who've missed out on the Obama rally. So I think it's very important not to, not to get too obsessed with politics. The other thing I'd say is, yes, you know, we've got divided government. That's the norm more than 60% of the time since World War II, we've actually had divided government. But I do think it makes a difference because if the Republicans had control of everything, I think we would have seen tax reform 2.0. We would have seen more infrastructure spending. We might have seen more defense spending. I think we would have had bigger deficits. So I think divided government is going to slow down the amount of government stimulus. But actually, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think, you know, this, this economy is running at full employment. You don't normally give an economy at full employment stimulus. So in a way, I think this is okay that we've got divided government, that we don't see more stimulus at this point in the cycle. From a political perspective, one of the things that's really been gyrating markets has been trade discussions. Yes. Does, does the recent election have any impact on whether or not we see continued tariff wars? I think it does a little bit. I mean, the, the administration gets to make tra trade policy. Uh, years ago, the Congress have more, uh, more or less ceded control of trade policy to the executive, and there's no way they can take that control back. So the president does get to make trade policy. But I think he is, you know, as we move past the midterm elections, he will focus more on 2020. And one of the problems is, remember I said we were not going to get more stimulus. That's, I think that's true. Therefore, the economy is probably going to be slowing down a bit. And again, that's okay. I think it'll slow down to about 2% growth in the second half of next year and going into 2020. But the one thing the president wants to avoid is an actual recession. And one of the problems is that, that tariff wars are very damaging to the global economy, they're very damaging to the US economy. They fill the atmosphere with uncertainty. That causes investment spending to slow down. Uh, if you raise Chinese uh, tariffs and Chinese goods, it's going to slow down consumer spending. So to some extent, I think it puts pressure on the president to try to come to a deal with China. And my instinct, and I, I must admit there's a lot of opinions out there on this, but I think the president actually will come to a deal with China. I think he wants to be the person who makes a deal. Um, you know, he will certainly portray that as being a deal that no other president could have gotten. And, you know, I don't know how that plays politically, but I think from a economic perspective and thinking about the 2020 election, I think the midterms in some ways make it even more likely that we will see some deal to try and ratchet down tensions with China. And I think that's very important. If there is slower growth coming ahead in the next year or two, yeah. and with the lower taxes, then likely the deficit might balloon even a little bit more. And how concerned are you of, on that? Well, I am concerned. I'm concerned about the deficit the way I'm concerned about global warming. I mean, I don't think that I'm going to, going to be killed by it right now, but I think it's a bad trend and we ought to do something about it. I mean, the truth is we are at full employment. The unemployment rate in the United States is the lowest it's been since 1969. And so if you've got an economy that's healthy, it's, it's kind of like, you know, to me, this, this extra deficit spending is kind of like bringing a, an extra keg to the frat party at 2 a.m. I, I mean, it, it, makes, it, makes for a, it makes for a louder party, but it's, uh, right. it ultimately means a bigger hangover. Right. And, and to me, the, the problem with the deficit is not that it's going to blow us up. It's just going to make us poorer in the long run. It's just like in your own finances. I mean, there, you know, there are people in their 50s and 60s. Should they be taking out another credit card? Should they be, uh, you know, borrowing more money that point? Well, no, because they're going to need to live off that money in retirement. And 10 years out, we're going to have a debt. The national debt is going to be about 100% of GDP. And two thirds of that debt will be owed to people overseas. 
And so at that point, we will be paying taxes to fund the retirement of the Germans and the Japanese rather than fund our own. So if we live beyond our means today, we will be forced to live beneath our means in the future. I don't think that's a very responsible thing to do. So given that the average individual doesn't have a whole lot of control over that eventual outcome, what steps mm-hmm. can they take today to protect themselves? Because that's that's pretty troubling what you're laying out, the case. Well, yes. Yeah. And I, th- I think people do need to think about it from exactly that perspective. And I think the mistake that people make is they worry about the deficit. Oh, the deficit's going to blow us up. We're going to be Argentina. We're going to be Greece. And they freeze and they don't do anything. And they actually pull back and, and invest, you know, put money in cash rather than investing. Actually, to me, what it really says is, you know, this deficit is a, is a shake-up call and a wake-up call to people. They need to do more for themselves. I mean, all the way through the, to this point, the federal government has been spending more than taking in taxes. In the future, it's going to have to take more in taxes than it spends. Where is it going to cut spending? It's going to sp- cut spending on older Americans and on Medicare. It has to, uh, because that's where all the growth is. Um, where is it going to raise taxes? It's going to raise taxes on richer people. So if you happen to be older and richer than average, there is a target on your back. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's it's kind of like the scene in Jaws where where, where uh, Chief Brody looks out over the back and he sees the shark. He runs into the captain. He says, we need a bigger boat. <laughs> <laughs> Investors need a bigger boat because uh, because this deficit is going to make it more difficult for them in the long run. We haven't heard too much about Brexit lately, but let's talk yeah. about that and, and its potential impact on the global economy and the U.S. as well. Yeah, I, I, I still think that Brexit is a big splash for Britain and rather a small ripple for the rest of the world. And in fact, even just in the last few days, Britain has come to a sort of a tentative agreement with the European Union. Uh, but Theresa May, the, the British Prime Minister, is having a terrible time selling it to her own cabinet or to her own party. And so it looks like this draft agreement will not get through the House of Commons in, in Britain. And that could mean that Britain leaves the European Union without a deal, which would be a disaster for Britain. Um, it could mean another general election in Britain or another referendum, which I think would be the best uh, outcome. Ultimately, I don't think it hurts the Europeans that much. It doesn't hurt the, the, the global economy. It's just Britain. Britain needs to trade. And Britain cannot afford to have a trade barriers with its biggest trading partners, nor can Britain afford to have a hard border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, because that could set off uh, the troubles which have really been a problem for Britain and Ireland for 600 years. So, you know, this is what comes of populism. I mean, I, I'm, I try not to be political, Republican versus Democrat. People are entitled to their opinions. But, but, but populism is, is basically when you shut off the left side of your brain and you just do what feels good. And Brexit felt good to a lot of angry people in Britain. But it was a terrible own goal. It's a stupid thing to do. And I just hope that they have the good sense to, to, uh, to give themselves a chance to reconsider. Now that they see what, what's going on, and this can only harm Britain, I do hope the British Parliament gives the British people the opportunity uh, on a do-over on whether they really want to do this thing because they really shouldn't do this thing. Dr. David Kelly will be back momentarily with his thoughts on growth versus value stocks, U.S. versus international stocks, emerging markets, and more. To watch the video of this interview or to read the transcript, visit the show notes at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. Coming up in the next few weeks on the podcast, you told us you wanted financial strategies for our military members and retirees, and we're delivering. We'll get tips and resources for our military families from Ellie Kay and Bethany Bayless of Heroes at Home and the Money Millhouse podcast. Also coming up, Jeff. Jefferson Lilly of the Mobile Home Park Investors Podcast and LinkedIn Group will tell us why he thinks mobile home parks are better than any other real estate investment. And everything you ever wanted to know about your finances and everyone else's with Lindsay Stanberry, editor of Refinery29's Money Diaries. Don't miss a thing. Subscribe to the podcast and the podcast newsletter at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. 
I liked what you said about shutting off the one side of your brain and doing what feels good in the moment, because I think that whether it's letting political views change people's views of the economy or whether it's a bias of, hey, I want to invest in whatever's done the best lately and deviate from my long-term plan, people are so subject to that. And so looking at a couple of the trends we've seen over the last few years, do you see them continuing? And, and maybe starting with this year, U.S. stocks have done quite a bit better despite the volatility than international yeah. stocks. What, what do you think of international versus U.S.? I would be overweight international versus U.S. I mean, right now, the U.S. accounts for 56% of global stock market capitalization. That is the biggest number we have ever seen. And I think it's too big. Uh, and if you look at overseas, overseas economies have got more room to grow in the long run. I mean, we're at full employment and the population, the working age population is not really growing very fast. There's plenty of unemployment in Europe. There's plenty of growth potential in emerging markets. Um, European and, and emerging market stocks are a good deal cheaper than U.S. stocks. Uh, so are Japanese stocks. Uh, I think the dollar is too high and it'll come down over time. So logically, again, this is where you switch on the left side of your brain. Logically, international looks like it really ought to do better than U.S. over the next five years. I can't tell over the next year or so. I mean, nobody can. But I mean, think about what's happened. What's happened is this. It's, it's like a marathon. You've got all these people running in a pack and then somebody, somebody runs ahead. They become the hare. And that's the U.S. this year because of all this fiscal stimulus, the U.S. picked up and the rest of the world sort of slowed down. But this, this fiscal stimulus is mostly sugar, and, and the U.S. economy will slow down again, and the pack's going to catch up. And in fact, even as the Federal Reserve stops raising rates, the rest of the world, you know, the European Central Bank is going to start raising rates, and that should bring the dollar down. So in the long run, when I look at it, I think international will beat the U.S., and I think people should make sure they are not underweight international right now, because so many Americans are. Yeah, I think that's right, because, I mean, there tends to be such a home bias in investing. You kind of invest what you know. But speaking about U.S. investments, uh, what about gross stocks versus value and small? Because gross stocks have been kind of the winner for a number of years here. They have, and I think there's a lot of momentum going on. And I think one of the things that's happened is people have moved money from actively managed funds into passively managed funds. The problem is that a lot of active fund managers look at valuations, and they were overweight value. And the problem is that every time somebody sells out of an active managed fund and moves into a passive fund, they're implicitly moving from value to growth. And I think that's really helped growth outperform. But I, I always like to think about this, you know, let's think, you know, don't think about the next year, think about the next five years. So let's, let's move through a cycle and a few events here. Overall, value stocks are a little bit cheaper than growth stocks relative to their history. And if you look at that history, that history includes the tech bubble. So when I, when I think about that, I think value stocks are really significantly cheaper than growth stocks. At the moment, I think the big trend is still rates are going to rise, be overweight cyclicals versus defensives. So that's kind of how you should split the market up rather than value versus growth. But in the long run, I do think value will beat growth. I particularly like small cap value, which tends to get left behind in this kind of market. Um, I'd want to have a chip in every square. But if I had an extra chip, I, I'd put it down <laughs> in small cap value. What about, as you think more broadly to a portfolio, a lot of people, maybe they own a few international stocks, maybe they own some U.S. stocks. What about other asset classes, whether that's bonds, commodities? How, how should people be looking at some of those asset classes now? Well, I think, first of all, on bonds, for a long time, it has been sensible for most investors, particularly younger investors, to be overweight stocks versus bonds, because long-term interest rates are being held down very low by central banks. Um, but we are seeing those bond deals move up. And if I'm right and the Federal Reserve just raises rates three more times, then today's number at, you know, I think we've got a 10-year Treasury yield right now at 3.1%. Uh, so we might. So if we ended up at 350, you'd get hurt a little bit on that if that's where you are by next June. But I think that's about the, the extent of it. So I think people should gradually be moving to a more neutral position between stocks and bonds, you know, relative to where they'd normally be. On commodities, 
I think it's okay to have some exposure to commodities. You know, I certainly wouldn't be overweight commodities because I don't think this is a very inflation-prone global economy. And uh, you know, I think commodities are particularly useful when you think um, inflation is going to go up. But I'd have some commodities. I think you can look at various alternatives also within within asset classes. I think you have to be very flexible at this point. Uh, but I, I think the number one thing I do is make sure that I had enough international equities versus U.S. equities. Let's talk a little bit about emerging markets and China's impact on emerging market investments. What are your thoughts there? Uh, well, China is gradually slowing down. Uh, I have not seen any evidence that China is in crisis. Um, I think China, of course, controls the data coming out of China very you know, heavily. Uh, but even talking to people on the ground in China, you know, things are growing a little bit more slowly. But it looks like it's okay. I think the Chinese are very nervous right now about this trade war. And I think actually all of Asia is nervous about the trade war because Asia is really built on, on exports and, and they will get hurt very badly by a trade war if, if it comes to pass. So I think really your opinion on how that one plays out really will, will have a big impact on emerging market stocks in general because most emerging market stocks are actually in Asia. So I think it will have a big impact uh, on that. But overall, I am relatively optimistic because trade wars are just bad and they, they don't work. They never achieve the goals that they're, that they're setting out to achieve. So I don't think that we're going to be in perpetual trade war. And when we get some sort of agreement, I think that could be a signal for, for emerging market stocks and particularly Chinese stocks to rally. If we step back and look more at fundamental investment principles, one thing that your firm puts out every quarter is the Guide to the Markets, which is a, a fantastic publication. And there's a chart that you put in there that looks at the last four decades or so, and it turns out that in 75% of those years or so, the stock market has ended up. But during that year, there's been a pretty significant intra-year decline, yeah. despite the eventual positive gain. Can you talk a little bit about how people should react to these periodic sell-offs and the fact that over time, there's an upward momentum to the market? Yeah, I, th I think that's right. And I think people do tend to react uh, out of fear whenever they see a sell-off. And of course, you know, that gets to something you were saying earlier on about how people people doing what they what feels good just gets them into trouble. And so, I mean, that's why the average individual investor is usually doesn't get the full potential of markets because they tend to buy when they feel good and sell when they feel bad. And of course, they feel good when markets are high. They feel bad when markets are low. Um, so I think people do need to look at the long span of history. And I think you should also look at the economy first and then look at markets. Because, if, for example, on international stocks so far this year, we haven't seen a big slowdown in the global economy. We haven't seen a big fall in global earnings. What we've seen is a fall in some international currencies, which I think is temporary. And we've also seen a... Uh, a fall in the PE ratios in some of these stocks, but that, that can that can always bounce back. So, you know, looking at the fundamentals in the U.S., we are in the tenth year of an economic expansion. I think we will make it to an eleventh year, which will make this the longest expansion since the Civil War. Uh, we've got very low unemployment, but what's really interesting is this low unemployment is not triggering the kind of inflation you'd normally see. So we're almost getting a, a free pass on strong growth here. Um, and then we've got spectacular corporate profits. I mean, the first three quarters of this year, corporate profits were up 27%, 27%, and 32% year over year. If you look at operating earnings per share. And now I know profit growth is going to slow down, and everybody's focused on future earnings growth, but I think of a lot of current earnings now, which are pretty good. So when I look at those fundamentals, I think about, about a Federal Reserve that's being patient. I think about a global economy, which is pretty balanced and growing okay. I think about what tax cuts have done for valuations, and they have made stocks cheaper. I think when you look at those fundamentals, you realize that this this bull market stocks is really built on fairly firm foundations. Now, I don't think stocks will give you great returns from here, because frankly, they've come a long way. 
but I think people people should not be too worried about a big sell-off that will persist. Again, remember, you know, you're planning for an entire retirement and maybe for your heirs. I mean, you're talking you, your investment plan for most for most people. What the real long-term investment goal should be is measured in decades, not in months or years or weeks. And so I think you should take these you know, sell-offs. You could always look at them, look at the fundamentals. Is that justified? But if the fundamentals don't justify the sell-off, then that's actually time to get in, not to get out. There's, I've never seen a good long-term investment that didn't feel uncomfortable at the start. And it always feels uncomfortable in the middle of a sell-off. That's usually the best time to buy. David, this has been such good information. Any other final thoughts before we let you go? Well, uh, you know, I think 2019 is going to be, uh, could be a challenging year. But I, again, I'm just going to sort of reiterate sort of the theme of what we're talking about here is, you know, just try to activate the left side of your brain. Look at the world logically. Try to put the political <laughs> emotion aside and think about how things are going to play out. And, uh, you know, try to suppress your prejudices, which cause you to stay away from international or cause you to get out of markets when, when markets sell off. Uh, they're, they're good fundamentals underlying markets, and people should still be long-term investors. Uh, good advice. How can people find out more information about you and some of the things that you're, you're putting out there? Well, two things. Um, you, first of all, you can go to jpmorganfunds.com, and you can find our guide to the markets, which you kindly mentioned, uh, which we put out every quarter, and then we update every month. Or, or also, I've got a little LinkedIn uh, blog, which I do every week, just on some thoughts on, on the week ahead and, and uh, what's going on in markets. So anybody wants to find me on LinkedIn, it's just David Kelly at JP Morgan on LinkedIn. So Dr. David Kelly, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, he's the Managing Director, uh, Chief uh, Global Strategist at JP Morgan and uh, Charter Finance Analyst, very smart guy as we just heard. So uh, thank you again so much. Anytime. Of course, you know you can find all the relevant links mentioned in the show notes for today's episode at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. If there is someone you would like to hear on the podcast, email your suggestions, comments, and money questions to info at purefinancial.com. Now, as the year is winding down, it's time to talk about some year-end strategies for saving money on your taxes. Also in the show notes, you'll find a link to watch the Your Money, Your Wealth TV episode on how the new tax law might affect your retirement. Alan, did you know that probably almost half of U.S. citizens do not pay any income tax whatsoever. I think that's, yeah, yeah, I did know that, and I think that's probably surprising to a lot of people, is that half of the country is paying all the taxes for everybody. But I look at it a little bit differently, is that when people hear ideas or things in the media, or let's say Money Magazine, Kiplinger, you listen to radio shows, TV shows, and you, you, you look at these grandiose statistics, right? Like, you'll be in a lower tax bracket in retirement, well, yeah, most people will be in a lower tax bracket in retirement because they're not even paying any tax. <laughs> it's hard to get better than it's that. It's hard to get better than that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because then they don't have any savings and Social Security will be tax-free because that's the way that's done when you have no other income. Right. And so when you look at half of the population doesn't pay any income tax, the other half does. And so if I'm looking at, um, you, you, you hear the statistics of the United States as a general whole, well, yeah, it's going to shift more towards those individuals, unfortunately. There's a lot of inequality, I guess, and I don't want to get political here. But I think a lot of times you hear things and then you think it applies to you, which could be the exact opposite. Because 5% of wage earners pay almost 55%. Yeah, the top 5% pay, yeah, you're right, over half. Top 10%. Pays about almost 70, 66%. Right. And that top 10%, that AGI, is not as big as you think, Al. Do you know what it is? 
Yeah, I think it's around one hundred thirty thousand. Yeah, one hundred thirty-eight thousand dollars. Yeah. So one hundred thirty-eight thousand dollars. If you make one hundred thirty-eight thousand dollars, you're in the top ten percent of all wage earners. Right, in the entire country. In the entire country. A lot of our listeners probably have a combined income of that. There's a lot of single people that listen to the show probably have income like that. Sure. So welcome to the top 10%. Right. Right? Yeah. But then you hear, all right, well, no, you'll be in a lower tax bracket and blah, blah, blah. You kind of start tuning the stuff out, and then you don't necessarily know what direction to go. Right. Uh, So hopefully that puts things in perspective. And so, Al, let's break some things down. If we're an employee, investor, retiree, or whatever. Yeah, I think uh, right off the bat now we've only have a you know month and a half let's say, but uh, still consider your IRAs, still consider your four hundred one ks. IRAs, of course, you can contribute till April fifteenth of next year. It's still fifty five hundred dollars uh, per person or sixty five hundred dollars if you're fifty and older. Uh, simple IRA, if you got that kind of plan at your employer, it's twelve thousand five hundred. You have to do that by December thirty first. Do another three thousand dollars if you're fifty and older, and don't forget your four hundred one k. So that's eighteen thousand five hundred with an extra six thousand uh, dollars if you're fifty and older. That has to be done by December thirty first. Now that's if you're an employee. If you're an employer, you can fund the profit sharing parts of like a four hundred one k, for example, and at the tell the due date of the tax return. So you've got a little bit more time there. So again, you've got uh, maybe just a few more weeks to make sure, at least if you have a four hundred one k or a simple IRA, you're maxing that out to the extent that you can, that you can afford it, because that's you're going to pay less taxes to the extent you've done that. Right. Uh, you know, a lot of you, if you do have some additional savings and you realize that you didn't max out your plan and you want to. Uh, don't get confused that you think it's a percentage of income because it's not. It's dollar for dollar. So you're like, well, I'm only maxing it out. How many times we hear that? Right. Well, I, no, I put 10% in. That's a max. And it's like, well, no. Well, 10% of your salary is, you know, 7000 Right. You can put in a lot more than that. Yeah. And, and Joe, at, there were plans 20 years ago that, that limited to how much you can put in as a percent. Virtually all plans that we see now, it's unlimited. You could put in as much as you want, even 100% of your salary if you want to. Up to the 18.5 or 24.5. That's right. Up, up to those limits. Up to the limits. Yeah. So if you made $20,000 a year, you could virtually shelter almost 100% of your income right. minus payroll tax. Right. Yeah, exactly. So a few other things, Joe, is there were a bunch of tax law changes in this current year, and I think it's important to review those while you're thinking about year-end planning. Uh, the first is the standard deduction increased. It just about doubled. So a single taxpayer was a little over $6,000. Uh, standard deduction, now it's $12,000. Married was almost 13000 but now it's 24000 So what that means is less of you will be itemizing, and itemized deductions is taxes and interest and charity, things like that. So if, you, if less of you are going to be itemizing, it may not make any sense to prepay a mortgage payment or to make an extra charitable contribution if you're not going to get any benefit for it. You, you may want to do those things anyway, but it may not help you tax-wise. Right. In, in most cases, it, it, it probably won't. Yeah. And then when you consider itemized deductions, for those of you that can still itemize, uh, there were a f- uh, some big changes. The biggest one probably, Joe, was, was property and state taxes. So now the upper limit is $10,000. That's as much as you can deduct. And for those of you living in California with high property taxes and high state taxes, in many cases, your deduction was $20,000, $30,000, $50,000. Anyway, that's limited to $10,000 on state and local taxes. So you're probably going to have a lot lower itemized deductions because of that. Yeah. I mean, 
this killed a lot of people in a lot of high-tax states. Yeah, it did. Another one is the mortgage interest, although it's still fully deductible. Now you can only have a mortgage of up to 750000 Only. And take the, yeah, only, right? <laughs> Which sounds like a lot to a lot of people, and it is. But it used to be a million bucks you could borrow and fully deduct the interest. Now, if, if you had a million-dollar loan prior to December 15th of last year, you still that grant gets grandfathered in. But your home equity loan debt that you could deduct last year up to $100,000 of debt, that's gone. You can't do that anymore in 2018. Right now, we're seeing some volatility in the overall markets. Um, one of the strategies that you might want to consider is something that's called tax loss harvesting. And I think most people don't understand this, Alan. Yes, I would agree with you. Is in, Let me try to give you a quick high-level view of what the heck this is. Yeah, it's easier if you draw it out. Yes. Let's see how you do yeah, with I'm, your words. Yeah. <laughs> Let's assume that you purchased an asset, and that asset is worth $10,000. Okay. This so I, asset has to be outside of your retirement account. So it could be a mutual fund. It could be a stock. It could be a bond. It could be whatever. So, all right. So I bought a mutual fund for 10000 bucks, And it's outside of your retirement account. It's in a brokerage account. Okay. The market is volatile, and all of a sudden, that $10,000 drops to $5,000. Okay. Not a very good investment. Not Well, no. It's, it could be a phenomenal investment. Long but, term. Short, long term, but short term, short term we so have volatility, Alan. Got it. So that's your comment is just like everyone else is saying, well, this is a dog. I need to sell it and I need to find another strategy. And then that's why the average investor <laughs> does very poorly versus the average in investment. All right. Okay. Wow. We got, I got, I got schooled. Yes, Joe you did. <laughs> yes, you did. So here's the, here's the, the concept of this is you want to harvest losses. As the market continues to be a roller coaster. Okay. So the mutual fund that you bought for 10000 is now worth five. What I would suggest you do is to sell that mutual fund, but not necessarily abandon your overall investment strategy, but buy a similar mutual fund that is in a similar asset class. So I still want you to be in the market, but what happened? You took that $5,000 loss and you harvest it. It's now sitting on your tax return. It's called a capital loss. It will sit on your tax return until you use it to offset any capital gain. So now the market recovers because you sold mutual fund A, but you bought mutual fund B. So you had the S&P 500 index fund. You sold it, and you bought the Wilshire 5000 index fund. Okay. So you Or the Russell 2000 or something like that. So right? you're still in the market. Still fully invested. Got it. Right? Then... If the market recovers and you need to sell something, well, you have this $5,000 loss that you harvest that could offset any future gain. Right. Dollar for dollar. Dollar for dollar. And I think that's what people don't really understand. It's, it's a capital loss. And you, if you don't use it, it gets carried forward to the following year. It goes against capital gains dollar for dollar until it's used up. Absolutely. And if you do not have a capital gain, then what happens is that they will allow you to take 3000 of that capital loss and offset it against ordinary income. So that would be like against salary or interest or something like that, pension income. For so, example, and and that's the problem. A lot of people think you only get a three thousand yes, dollar benefit. That's the biggest problem. Is like, well, I got a fifty thousand dollar loss. I don't want to take. You know, what's a big tax deal? It's only three thousand dollars. 
Well, yeah, that's against a totally different tax. Right. If you have capital gains, it goes against that dollar, dollar for, dollar, for dollar. Right. And and sometimes people that even understand that they look in December, they they say, okay, I got twenty thousand dollars of gains. What can I harvest a loss to get, offset it? But not always. I mean, it, sometimes the stock market's really high in December, and so you may not be able to harvest anything. So you kind of have to be looking at this throughout the whole year. Especially, uh, yeah. And if you haven't looked at it, make sure that you look at it now. Especially with the volatility, and, right? And because there's probably some losses in some of your positions, potentially, and this is a really good time to take a look at it. All of this tax planning and strategy implementation needs to occur prior to December 31st. That's only a few weeks away, depending on when you listen to this podcast. Make sure you're taking advantage of all the changes from the latest tax reform and paying as little tax as legally possible. Download the 2018 Tax Planning Guide and the Tax Checklist for free. Find links to both in the show notes for this episode at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. Now, for more personalized help, click the free assessment button at the top of the page and schedule a free tax analysis and retirement assessment with the team of professionals at Pure Financial Advisors. Visit yourmoneyyourwealth.com. We're talking about tax laws harvesting, which is an extremely exciting topic. <laughs> I almost fell asleep just saying that title. You almost fell asleep while you are talking? Yes. Yeah. Uh, tax gain harvesting, Alan, is another thing that people should potentially take a look at if you do have gains in your overall portfolio. Yeah, and I think uh, uh, this is a mystery to a lot of people. It's, it's, it's like, wait a minute. I thought you just said we need to do tax loss harvesting. Well, there's a completely opposite strategy if you're in a low enough tax bracket. For example... If right now you're in the 10 and 12 percent tax bracket, uh, which which goes up to about 38,000 single, about 77,000 married and change. Anyway, if you're in that area, if you're below that, then you can actually sell some of your capital gains, uh, your long-term capital gains, have to hold it for a year and a day, and you'll actually pay zero capital gains tax. So let me give an example. So you've got $50,000 of taxable income, and you're married. So I just told you you could go up to 77000 So that means you could have $27,000 of long-term capital gain on your, on your federal return and pay zero capital gains tax. It's like it was tax-free. Now, full disclosure, you will pay tax in your state, depending upon how they do. In California, it's still taxable. Uh, but uh, in, in, on the federal return, it's, it's tax-free. And so a lot of folks are trying to avoid selling their positions and rebalancing and, and getting an appropriate investment portfolio. And even though they, they need to do it, and they wouldn't even pay any tax or any federal tax doing it. And they, well, if they love that stock, they could buy it back the next, the same day. Yeah, actually, that's another good strategy. You just increase your basis. Increase your basis so that when you do finally sell it down the road, there'll be less gain. Right, so yeah, that I think that's a good one. Now, and that also works if you're in higher tax brackets because maybe you're near a threshold to where if you had much more capital gain, you'll be above the two hundred fifty thousand dollar threshold, so you have to pay the extra Medicare surtax, or maybe you're going to bump up against the twenty percent capital gain rate. So yeah, tax gain harvesting can be uh, pretty effective as well. Hey, uh, we talked to Jefferson Lilly. Um, we will be talking to him about. Mobile homes, mobile parks. Mobile home parks. Yeah. Mobile home parks. Yeah. And um, in real estate investing in general. Okay. And I think there's some other um, misunderstandings about real estate and taxes that I don't know what where it came about is that like real estate is the biggest tax haven ever. Yeah. And well, that's not necessarily true. It, it was true over 30 years ago, <laughs> but that whole that rumor still persisted. What happened, Joe, was. Uh, 
before 1986, there was the, um, you could deduct your losses on real estate unlimited. And by losses on real estate, you don't even really have to lose money on it. Even if, even if you break even cash flow, you get to depreciate your property. And every time you depreciate your property, at least under current law, uh, for every million dollars of building that you buy, you probably have about a twenty-five dollars or $26,000 write-off. So you buy $10 million, you've got a $200,000-plus write-off, unlimited. And that's actually how it used to be. And there was no income limitations none, to it. None. So 1986, we, we had the Tax Simplification Act under yep. Ronald Reagan. Yep. And it was anything but simple. And what happened, uh, among other things, is we got a new uh, set of rules called the Passive Loss Rules. The pigs and the pals? Yes. Uh, and so the Passive Loss Rules simply state this, which is when you have a passive loss, you can't deduct it. It just, just gets suspended on your return until you have passive income. Now, there, there, is a, there is a workaround at certain income levels. So if your income is below $100,000, you can write off up to $25,000 of your losses on real estate. If your income is over $150,000, you cannot write off anything. And if you're in between, there's a phase-out period. So the days of writing off everything you possibly can in real estate are no longer here. And, uh, and usually, I'll just say one more thing. A lot of times, the people that want to buy real estate have high income. They're looking for a tax shelter. They're above $150,000. There is no tax shelter. Right. I wonder how big of an uproar that was back then. I mean, well, were you practicing in 86? Yeah. I was, uh, I was at my third CPA firm. Um, oh, jumping around. Huh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you couldn't hold a job, huh? Couldn't, no. I have my fourth job, <laughs> third CPA firm in my 20s, <laughs> just like the current millennials. <laughs> anyway, you were ahead of your time. I was ahead of my time, is right. So, uh, yeah, I, I mean, it was, uh, it was a big deal for the real estate investors because where they had these write-offs, they didn't. And the concern was that properties now would go down in value because of the loss of the, of the write-off. And uh, what ultimately happened was that the early 80s were not very friendly for real estate. The late 70s were extremely, there's a lot of uh, uh, inflation and real estate went way up. The early 80s, it went down a little bit, not much, a little bit. But by the late 80s, after this tax law changed, it was phased in over four years. Uh, real estate zoomed again. So, and, and partly, a lot of times when people say this tax law changes, so real estate's going to go in the tank. Well, that's one factor, but there's a lot of other factors that make things go up or down. Well, well, they also reduced the um, tax rates significantly they back did. then too. They did the tax implications, and that and that was the idea is to is to try to make it because simpler. if I have a seventy percent top marginal rate. And then, so I'm going to buy real estate to try to get these two hundred thousand dollar losses sitting on my return, right? Versus saying, okay, well now I can only write twenty five thousand or zero, but now instead of a seventy percent top marginal rate, it went down to fifty. Yeah, it went to yeah, which right. big savings. Now we're at thirty seven percent, but right, right, uh, right. yeah. And I remember in the early eighties, my second CPA firm I went to, they were helping. Uh, these private placements, these these limited partnerships, yeah. And then I learned what two to one and three to one and four to one means. I had no idea. And what it mean, what it means, two to one means, I invest a thousand dollars in this investment and I get uh, two thousand dollars in tax savings. It's like, well, how do you do that? Well, just it's smoke and mirrors. But it was there was all these crazy rules, passive lot, all these rules, and it was it was these limited partnerships that caused the passive loss rules to come into play because people were doing crazy things that had no investment potential just to get the tax write-off. I got in this business in '98, and um, I worked for a large financial planning firm, and back. But back then, back then, when I started, 
way back then. Back in the day. Could do the thing with the hands? <laughs> yes. <laughs> when I started, right, um, I got a stack of um, clients, right? Um, they were like, and that was like the, the con, or, or not the con, but it was like the intrigue. Oh, we'll give you a book of clients yeah. and everything else, right? How much is a stack? I mean, it was about 100 clients. You got 100? Was a stack wow. of Really? But That's pretty good. Guess what? 100 clients yeah. I got. Every single one of those clients, yeah. they bought, um, and it was, it, it was, they were all worthless clients because they bought a tax shelter that, is, went that was not, now worthless. And you're calling them. And saying, I'm calling them. We got, we got a new one for you. Hey, I'm, like I'm drumming up new business with these people <laughs> that are pissed. I got another windmill operation for <laughs> yes. you. Oh, my God. <laughs> That'd that was, be tough. That was, yeah. If I'm you sure. could get through that and you stuck in the industry. Yeah. You must, just grinding out 100 dials, 200 dials a day. You got a lot of determination. Yeah. It yeah. was um, man. You, this explains so much. Yeah, well, you just gotta you you gotta make a game out of it. Right. You know what I mean? It's just like, right. well, how many people can you know call me a scumbag? Yeah, you know that was the game for the. What day. was it? Was it twenty five percent or higher? Yeah, because people actually answered the phone. Yeah. Back then, yeah, and so I could talk to Cause, them because you didn't—they didn't know who was calling. There was no, no caller yeah, ID. They, yeah, they yeah. thought it well, was their long lost son or something. Right, you know, was, right. Yeah, no caller ID, and there was no call. You know, the 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 do not call lists and, and all how, of that. How did other you stuff. start? Hey, I know you invested with us a few years ago, but and it didn't work out so well. But we got something that's really good this no, time. No, it'd be like, um, hello, Alan. This is Joe over here at Broker Firm. Yes. Um, you know, you're a client of ours, and I am recently reassigned to your account. Right. And I would like to set up a meeting for you and I to, you know, talk about your overall situation. I know probably a lot of things have changed. And then they'll be like, "What the hell are you talking about?" <laughs> I, I go, "Yeah, I bought twenty thousand dollars worth of this, you know, bulk." And it was that yes. was awful. I lost every penny. I'm yes. never going to do another thing. And he with goes, you guys. "Yeah, it was okay for the tax deduction, but that was like twenty years ago, kid. You know, please don't call me again." <laughs> okay. Hey. Uh, <laughs> next. next. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's a tough way to break into the business. Yeah, and then I bought a bunch of leads. I had to buy them for like seven dollars and fifty cents. Right. And then uh, wow. the used ones, I could buy them for a dollar. Yeah. Used leads. Used leads <laughs> yeah. for a dollar. So that someone just called them like two minutes earlier. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or they, you know, they were the the ones that said, you know, go pound sand. You could buy those for a dollar. You really want to get punished. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, there you have it. That was the start wow. of something very special. How about that, yeah, I get thick skin now. Yeah, he does indeed. And if you work with him, you better have thick skin too. Anyway, let's get to answering your money questions. You've sent in a boatload of them, and we're churning through them as fast as we can. But if we haven't answered you yet, be patient. Keep checking the show notes at yourmoneyyourwealth.com for the answers. If you want to add your money question, comment, or suggestion to the list, you can email info at purefinancial.com. You can click the Ask Joe and Big Al button at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. You can call 888-994-6257, or you can post your question on our Facebook or Twitter pages, and the fellows will answer on the podcast. Podcast. Find our social links in the show notes at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. This one is from Sheen Z. Sheen Z. What was that other name that I really enjoyed? Mohan. 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 <laughs> Mohan should be introduced to Sheen Z. Great name. Yes. Uh, from San Diego. Sheen said, Hi, I enjoy your shows. I'd like to ask you a question in regards to tax. So I'm going to you, Al. Okay. She plans on selling stocks to pay for a claim to the state of California. The claim is $217,000 at 7% interest. Is this a silly decision? Thanks. 
Hmm. What do you think she means by claim? <clears throat> Maybe to the it's state a of California tax claim. She owes back taxes of two hundred seventeen thousand dollars, and they're charging her seven percent. Yeah, I suppose. Uh, yeah, you don't want to. You don't want to have California be your creditor. Uh, and if if you've got assets to be able to pay them off, that's a great way to go because. The, the the thing about and the same is true for the IRS is they're they're not necessarily the friendliest of organizations. Now you can potentially set up an installment payment plan with them, and you will pay the seven percent interest. But if you miss a payment, they're all over you. And and I don't know. I, I would if you have the resources, if you got enough stocks to do that without knowing your situation, I, I would I would I would I would probably want you to do that. Now if that's the only assets you have in your entire uh, life, uh, you, you probably don't want to liquidate everything. Maybe you, you liquidate part of it. Maybe you keep some of it for emergency cash reasons. Pay off as much as you can. Set up an installment plan for the balance. So that's what I think. Um, or it could be something completely else. It could. <laughs> I mean, I plan on selling my stocks to pay for a claim to the state of Cal- California. The claim is two seventeen at seven percent interest. I don't know. Maybe someone some, saying some kind of investment. Someone saying, "Hey, put two hundred seventeen thousand in at seven percent." Is I don't know. Seven percent interest on either side is high. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So so that was one way to answer it. The other way to answer it is if you're referring to some kind of investment at seven um, percent. Yeah, seven, I'd be pretty wary about that. Well, and if you have to sell a bunch of stocks and pay a bunch of taxes to get there, maybe that's not the best choice. So anyway, maybe we got you covered either way. Yeah, or maybe send us um, more, more information, information on this claim of 217. Yeah. All right, we got. Let's see, TJ. I want to. I want to talk about wanna TJ. Dive into TJ. That's I a, like that's TJ. a long one. It's all right. I like long ones. Yeah. And I just saw Andy. Hmm. <laughs> she didn't. She didn't want you to do that one. Yeah, and I want to. No, hey, go for it. I think it's great. Hi guys. <laughs> I love the show. Thanks for keeping me entertained financially. Oh, see? And welcome, TJ. That's why you wanted to read this one. Exactly. <laughs> and, 30... and anytime you compliment we'll, you, us, we'll read your question. I'm 34, and my wife and I have $250,000 in retirement assets, all with Vanguard. Uh, this is in my 401k, Roth and traditional. Uh, in a Roth IRA for each of us, we max out the latter, and I should max out my 401k next year or by 2020 for sure. I also have $3,000 in a brokerage account with Betterment. Love that I can buy those fractional shares. Uh, my question is, should I partner with Vanguard Personal Advisor Services at only 30 basis points? I want them to help guide me to retirement, ensure I'm saving enough. Uh, so he wants a little early retirement, possibly 55 to 60, and saving for my two-year-old's college. I also think it would be helpful on a withdrawal, uh, on withdrawing down the road. I get access to a dedicated CFP once I'm at $500,000, which will be in about five years or so. Vanguard feels like an extremely safe choice for financial planning assistance. Am I missing something? Thanks for your input, guys. Uh, TJ, I would go for it, bud. I like Vanguard. I think Vanguard is a phenomenal company. Uh, You got a couple hundred thousand bucks. 30 basis points is extremely inexpensive. Uh, you get $500,000, you get access to a certified financial planner um, that can talk to you on the phone and kind of help you out. Um, yeah, I think everyone needs some sort of personal advice just to kind of keep you a check. Um, some need a lot more than others. 
Um, as your situation gets a little bit more complex, uh, you might want to look at a full-service financial planning firm. Um, but I think where TJ's at, I like the I like where his head's at. Yeah, and I think I'm going to say I don't know what what you get at 30 basis points when you have less than 500,000. Sounds like you don't necessarily get at CFP. And so if the, if there's not a lot of services, maybe you wait. Maybe you're may, well. Ma- it's a it's a it's a managed portfolio. Ma- is what do you get? Yeah, if if you need the help to manage it, right? And I guess it so that it depends. You don't think people need help? Well, they they may. Do you know what the line of business you're in? I yes, I'm trying to, I, I'm trying to unsell myself. I, no, I would say it. I would say it this way. I think a, a lot of folks. I mean, people that are it sounds like they're edu- educated, like TJ. Maybe they can get a book uh, and look at asset allocation. Maybe they can do that, save a little bit of money. By the time you get to five hundred thousand, maybe it makes a lot of sense because now you you, you have someone else to talk to. And and uh, and I, but I do think by the time you get to retirement age, I would agree. I think probably a full service financial planning firm might be a little bit better. I don't believe that that Vanguard is going to be help you help you very much with tax planning and, and ways to create tax efficient with, withdrawal strategies that a full service financial planning firm might. I agree with that. Um, but yeah, I think anyone if they got fifty grand, two hundred grand, two hundred fifty, five hundred thousand, you know the statistics, Al. Most people, I mean, you could read all the books you want about asset allocation. You're still going to blow yourself up. <laughs> well, it depends if you have the discipline, right? Who has the discipline with their own money? I did. Bull loney. <laughs> Look at Al. Guaranteed. <laughs> This is from the man who had what four jobs by the time you were yeah, in your mid twenties. Exactly. <laughs> well, how many times uh, we have taped well, wait, all wait of you minute. talking about when you blew yourself up um, managing your own money? You mean on? When oh you yeah, said you got out at the wrong time. Oh yeah, time that was that you? was uh, okay. That was so. nineteen ninety. That was a while ago. But you're right. <laughs> that was uh, was I thirty four then? Let's see. Yeah, yeah, I was. I was about that. See, by then I'd made so all did, my. About TJ's age. Didn't you just recently I, I make made, moves in your portfolio? Yeah, but really, but now I know how to do it properly. <laughs> after, after 60 years. <laughs> okay. All right, go to Your Money, Your Wealth. We'll see you again next week for Big Al Clopine, Andy Last. I'm Joe Anderson. Uh, show's called Your Money, Your Wealth. Special thanks to today's guest, Dr. David Kelly, Chief Global Strategist for J.P. Morgan. Visit jpmorganfunds.com or read his weekly blog on LinkedIn. Find links in the podcast show notes at yourmoneyyourwealth.com, which is also where you can subscribe to Your Money, Your Wealth on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, Player FM, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, and now you can also listen to the Your Money, Your Wealth podcast on YouTube as well. Email your money questions to info at purefinancial.com or call 888-994-6257. Listen next time for more Your Money, Your Wealth presented by Pure Financial Advisors. For your free financial assessment, visit purefinancial.com. Pure Financial Advisors is a registered investment advisor. This show does not intend to provide personalized investment advice through this broadcast and does not represent that the securities or services discussed are suitable for any investor. Investors are advised not to rely on any information contained in the broadcast in the process of making a full and informed investment decision. Today, I'm thankful for my health, I'm thankful for this show, and I'm thankful to you for listening.